pray to the Lord. Uh, there's my thing. Say something, Max. Chicken butts are nice. tasty. What was the last thing you said? Are tasty. Chicken butts are tasty. Delicious chicken butts. Raw. My Uncle Lenny used to, you know, ask for the chicken butt on Thanksgiving. <laughs> I like this is a good start. <laughs> tell me <laughs> tell me more about your Uncle Lenny. He loved chicken butts. I don't know what it was. He had this literally shit-eating grin on his face. <laughs> okay, so now I know this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he would always ask for the chicken butt. All right, you had an Uncle Lenny, and he wanted chicken butts? Yeah. Well, I didn't realize that was an option. Yeah, right? Well, no, you know, you'd, you'd cook a turkey for Thanksgiving, and then uh -huh. at the end, there was a little bit of meat on, like, the little bony butt. <laughs> and Lenny wanted that. It was his favorite. Can you can you do his voice? Hmm. He was from Yonkers. Not even very indescript Yonkers. I probably sound like him. Was he like? Hello, my name is Lenny. I like the chicken butt. <laughs> A little bit. Hello, it's your uncle Lenny. I guess if you put his brain in a robot. Yeah. Then that's what he would sound like. Hello, Max. It's me, your Uncle Lenny. <laughs> All right, ready? We're going to do it. All right. Okay, I'll count us in and then we'll be doing it. Are you okay? Is everything okay over there? I think everything's going to be fine. We'll see what happens. I, I might be stupid, like I might not have any good juice for today, but maybe I do. We'll see. It's, at least we get a chance to talk. <laughs> You're just lonely. <laughs> so lonely, someone me. That's what I'm discovering, I guess, is you're just lonely. I can respect that. Yeah. Oh, Ooh, I just spilled hummus. Hang on, Max. All right. I just spilled a lot of hummus. It's all over the wheel of my chair. That was really weird. Hummus is like, uh... Paint? You know what I mean? Like it's thick and. I would think it'd be thicker than spilling it. That was weird. It's all over my face of my chair. On the wheel. The hummus wheel. Alright, 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 Abstract expressionism. Postmodernism. Is it? Okay, ready? Yeah. <laughs> One, two. I 
have seen windows to dreams, feeding a glowing machine, breathing underneath it all. No truer words were ever spoken by a host of the Post Relevant Podcast. And you are in luck, my friends, because this is the Post Relevant Podcast, and I am the host of said podcast. My name is Phil Restino. Welcome to my show. I'm glad you're here. Look, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I've been stalling. I have been stalling. <sighs> okay, we're in the home stretch, right? We're in the home stretch of my interpretation of the film Under the Silver Lake by David Robert Mitchell. And I've been stalling because I want to nail the landing. I want to stick the landing, as they say in gymnastics. I want to get it right. But it's been hard to marshal myself to do all the reading and the taking notes and the watching videos and assembling all of my thoughts about what I'm really trying to say and about the end of this movie and what I think the end of this movie is actually saying. Now, I have ideas already, and I have interpretations ready to go, but I haven't just assembled it all together and taken the proper kind of organized notes to really address the last few scenes of Under the Silver Lake, so I've been stalling a little bit. Um, but it's going to happen. I promise you this. It will happen, okay? I, I might disappear for a couple weeks while I'm actually marshalling myself, taking notes, settling in, focusing and getting down the final beats of what this movie is really saying. As you might have known, I, I've been working on an album for the last few years and the last couple months were like the finishing time for the record. So it's done and thank God it's done. But anyway, uh, now I have the space in my brain to really focus on finishing this beginning salvo of the post-relevant podcast about all about interpreting under the Silver Lake. And I'm going to do it. I've been stalling. I'm going to finish this movie, but not today. Haha. <laughs> See what I did there? Actually, today is a really awesome special episode. And uh, what I've got for you is a wonderful interview with my friend Matt Kalman. He is an actor, writer, director, producer, editor, and woodsman who uh, never listened to podcasts before I started doing the Post Relevant podcast. And I must have mentioned it to him and told him I was, you know, really into this movie. So he watched the film in order to listen to my podcast, I think partially because he was curious what podcasts are really all about and partially because he was curious why I was obsessed with this film and he watched the movie and he loved it and he realized that what I was talking about was real. And then he started listening to the podcast and he realized that I had a lot of cool ideas about what this movie was really about and what David Robert Mitchell was trying to say with the film and what the secret codes were, what the secret narrative in this film really was. So he started calling me and telling me that he was listening to the show and that he was really enjoying it. He liked the whole format of it and all. And because he had started watching the film, he started to develop his own theories and ideas about what some symbolic moments in the movie really were. We started having these excellent conversations all about the movie and how to interpret it and his theories. And I loved his theories. We even had one great conversation. We were in a park in Brooklyn and we were walking around this body of water 
and it was a beautiful day and we were just talking about all his theories and my theories about the film and what the symbolic language was and what it really was pointing towards, really about. And it was awesome, man. I wish I had recorded that conversation. But by then I realized, okay, this guy is obsessed. What happened to me with this film has happened to him with the film. And now he was in for a penny, in for a pound, trying to solve it, solve the mystery of Under the Silver Lake. And so, shit, man, I got to get him on the show. And so I drove, uh, I drove a couple hours up to his house and we were going to have like a whole in-person interview. It was going to be great. He lives in this beautiful property and up on a hill in the middle of the mountains. It's gorgeous up there. And he even has a cement pond on his property, a literal pond made of cement that I've swum in many times. And overlooking that is a glass rectangular house up on sort of stilts. And this was going to be the perfect spot to have our conversation overlooking a lake. Or, well, not really a lake, but, you know, a little body of water. So I went up there to interview him and it turned into a thunder and lightning storm that evening when we were going to talk. But we went down, I got all my gear and we went down to his little pool house or whatever it is. Bunk house, I don't know what you call it. Overlooking his little cement pond in the middle of a thunder and lightning storm. And I set up my gear and we sat down and we drank and we smoked and we talked. And I got wasted. <laughs> Super wasted. <laughs> it was insane. Um, I don't really drink that often anymore, but for me, when I combine alcohol and marijuana, uh, it can be deadly for Uncle Phil. And so we talked for about two, two and a half hours. By the middle of the conversation, I was solidly drunk. And by the end, I was barely verbal. And immediately upon finishing the interview, I opened up a glass door in his glass house and vomited out the side of it for a while. God, I was shit-faced. So, you know, after apologizing to him the next day, which he didn't care about, he wasn't upset, I drove home with my tail in between my legs and I realized that, shit, man, this interview isn't really not going to be usable. So we're going to have to do another interview. So a few weeks later, I got Matt on the computer and we had a regular style post-relevant podcast interview over the internet. And it was awesome. Really great. Matt was very cogent, coherent, and I stayed on task. I was totally sober. And we had a wonderful interview. We really dug into Matt's theories and how some of his theories supported some of my theories and then how some of his theories are just these wonderful ideas that cause us to really look deeper into the film and what the important themes are and what you know this film is really saying, and especially symbolically. And it's an awesome conversation. I love this conversation. And I think it does a lot for this ongoing interpretation of Under the Silver Lake. And it really enhances it all. Matt's got some really great ideas, really great takes. It's an awesome interview. I loved it. So I decided I would try this thing where I would overlap both of the interviews and using the second interview as the structure where I could introduce segments from the first interview. So the second interview is where we're both sober. 
First interview is where we're both drunk, but Matt is still mostly coherent and I am completely wasted off of my ass. That's the first interview. So I figured I'd create this format where we sort of time travel between the interviews and uh, use the more coherent second interview to create structure around the less coherent first fascinating interview. So what we're going to do is this sort of time traveling thing. And when you hear this sound, we'll be going back in time to the first interview. And when you hear this sound, we'll be going back forward in time to the second interview, which is the sober interview. And eventually I realized that those two sounds were kind of too long to keep on doing it over and over again. So I shortened the sounds. So when we're going back in time to the drunk interview, you'll hear this shorter sound. And when we're going forward in time to the sober interview, you'll hear this shorter sound as well. And I really like this whole interview. It's awesome. I scored it all with music as well. You get to hear me wasted off of my ass, but still trying to create coherent theories around what the film is actually about. Sometimes it's pathetic and sometimes it's funny. And sometimes I actually have something that's kind of interesting to say. And you'll get to hear all of Matt's awesome theories and Man, you know, for what I thought might be kind of like a throwaway episode, this actually is one of my favorite episodes. I love it. It's really cool. And so hopefully you're gonna, you guys are going to dig it and you're going to see the value in this interview and how it enhances the whole interpretation of the film. And also, don't worry. Brother Andy is going to be back soon and we're going to be talking about the last final scenes and under the Silver Lake, we'll be going to the hut with the final man and the three women. And we'll be going underground again with the homeless king and chaining Sam up to a chair to talk about why he has dog biscuits. And then we'll be back in Sam's apartment and watching Seventh Heaven and eventually finding our way over to the bird lady's apartment. And uh, I'll explain what it all means. And Brother Andy will be there working it out with me. It's going to be awesome. So stay tuned. More Under the Silver Lake interpretation to come. You won't regret it. Okay. So before we get into my conversation with Matt Kalman, I got a new song to play for you. This is a tune that I actually wrote with a friend of mine a long time ago. At least the music for the song was written many years ago uh, with a friend of mine, Alistair Redman. He's a great musician. But I never really knew what to do with the song. It was sort of this weird psychedelic keyboard-based jam. I never really knew what to do with the tune. I always had this idea for in the chorus for the words Yodorowsky's House Keys. And so last week, about a week or so ago, I was listening to that song and the instrumental version of the song, and all of a sudden, all the lyrics started coming to me. What to do with the chorus, what the verses should be about, and I realized that this song that is all about having Yodorowsky, the famous uh, surrealist filmmaker's house keys, would be a song all about having the ability to interpret the secret language in symbolic surrealist films. And so I started writing a song that was kind of about the combination of Pulp Fiction and The Big Lebowski and Under the Silver Lake. And the whole narrative uh, sort of revolves around those three movies. And it's sort of about having the keys to a secret language, essentially a symbolic language. 
being able to interpret it and how that level of surrealism enters your own life. Kind of, I don't know if that makes sense. But anyway, uh, the third verse is all about Under the Silver Lake, and that's the longest verse. And so hopefully you guys will dig this tune. I really like it. It's psychedelic and weird and really uh, explores the themes of this podcast and the film Under the Silver Lake. And so I thought, yeah, man, this is this is the time. I'll introduce it. And and it kind of explores that whole this whole uh Dionysian uh chaotic drunken revelry that we've been exploring in the podcast and that I explored in real life. So here you go. First you're going to hear Yodorowski's house key and then you're going to hear dog paddling in the deep end under the silver lake. I think you're going to dig it all. So please enjoy.
Howdy, welcome back to the Poster Elven Podcast. It's your buddy Phil. Um, you know, I, no matter what kind of segment that I'm doing on the show, I find that I reintroduce the podcast every time. So let's say that you and I have like, and I'll explain who I'm saying you and I to in one second, have a conversation, five conversations in one show. Every time we re-began the conversation, I would reintroduce the podcast. I don't know why, but I just find that's a thing that I do. It's bizarre. Okay, anyway, so if you're a listener and you hear that I constantly am reintroducing the podcast, I know I'm doing it. But I guess I just don't know what else to do. <laughs> so here I am. Uh, it's Phil. We're back with the Post-Relevant Podcast. And we're here for attempt number two at an interview with my buddy Matt Kalman, who is an Under the Silver Lake super fan like me. Um, so uh, welcome back to the podcast, Matt Kalman. How you doing, Matt? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks. I'm a two-timer. Two-timer. <laughs> A.K.A. Max Flackman. Uh, you might hear me call Matt Max um, throughout the interview. I can't help myself. I barely think of your name as Matt anymore, to be honest with you. Ugh, much better. Yeah. The name, the name comes from the movie I made. Uh, and since I made the movie, I basically gave myself a better name than my real name. <laughs> so you wish you were named Max instead of Matt? I do. I do. Nice. Why? What do you like better about Max? I don't want to get into that. No, I'm Why just not? kidding. No, <laughs> I'm joking. No, no, no. It's stronger. Like Max Power. Got it. From The Simpsons. Also, the there was a... There was a Sesame Street episode I saw when I was a kid, mm -hmm. um, and I'm a little chubby, mm -hmm. and at one point they were rhyming things, and one of the end rhymes was, don't let Matt sit on your hat, because he's a very fat cat. Oh, no. Yeah, it really scarred me. Oh, this. And so then if it was, don't let Max sit on your axe, because he's a real... Uh, <laughs> Silly uh, guy. No, something about slacks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's got some rad slacks. See, it's much better, much more yep. complimentary. Absolutely. I, we can, we've demonstrated it immediately. <laughs> um, but yeah, you made a movie with our buddy Mark Lesser, which is funny because you want to be Max, the maximum, and Mark's last name is Lesser. So he's the least. Right. But in the movie, he's uh, Martin Seltzer. Seltzer. What's better about Seltzer? Oh, I don't think he prefers that name. He probably oh, okay. prefers his real name. <laughs> did you? Did he make up that name as well? Oh, so hard to tell what happened really? back in those late 90s. Okay, so you guys made a movie back in the late 90s called Today Will Be Yesterday Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I was in it as Mystical Bill. The Mystical Bill. little elf man that lives inside of your cigarette pack. That's correct. <laughs> and you even built a giant cardboard cigarette pack that I crawled out of. Awesome. And I painted it. They were called um, Mystics. Mystics. Mystic lights, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we would have these conversations where I would crawl out of the cigarette pack and you'd be like, oh, I'm feeling depressed today. And then I would do a little dance and, and pretend to be different people and... <laughs> and do recite poetry that probably Mark had written. Yeah. 
and um, and that would cheer your character up. Somehow. Yeah, somehow. And then the last scene I'm in, I jump out of the trash and beat up Mark. That's right. <laughs> you escape. You yes. escape into the real world. It's true. Um, but oh, so you guys made this whole crazy movie. Uh -huh. You know, like you guys are out of college and you write an entire film, a, a comedy film, um, which uh, is a daunting adventure for youngsters. Um, and so when you're writing the script, who's typing? How does it work? How did it work for the two of you writing together? Because I imagine that's tricky to be writing a script with somebody else. So how, what was your process? Who's sit there and type and who's dictating or did you switch on and off or was that irrelevant? Like, how did you guys do it? We did it many different ways, but the this movie is many, many, many layers and levels in, inside itself, themselves. Mm -hmm. in, because it was about two dudes that were working who wanted to be actors mm -hmm. and uh, and they were working in a bank as like temps. And we wrote this movie as temps working in a bank. Oh, okay. So like we would just email back and forth. Sometimes it would be like one line and then another line and then mm -hmm. he'd email me back and I'd write a line. Either, or sometimes we'd be in, in the same room together and I would write my lines and he would write his lines back and forth. Or sometimes I would write a couple lines of his and he would write a couple lines of, it was all crazy nice. mishmashy together. But you're saying mostly it was through emails? Uh, yeah, I would say mostly through emails. But you're probably like in the same building or the same room working. With two different working. buildings, okay. same bank. Not working. <laughs> hey, shush. <laughs> they might I mean, hear us. a long us. time my, ago. I think you're off. boss from 20 years ago might hear me. Right. Um, but who got the do. job at the bank, you or Mark? I don't know who got it first. Uh -huh. I feel like it was me, but he got a better job. I was in the consumer side, uh -huh. and he was on the professional side. Don't, that's all I got. We're in two different buildings. I find it so weird that you got a job at a bank. I wouldn't even know how to begin to get a job at a bank. Well, it was like not actually in a physical bank. It was uh -huh. in like the headquarters of the bank. Okay. So like we, I was in, I was in HR. On but, the I mean, did you get it as a temp? Like, is, did, did someone temp you into that gig or? Yeah, I think we both started okay. as a temp okay. and then they were like. You know what hey. I mean? Cause you couldn't just like, can you imagine just walking into a bank and being like, I want to work here? No, I cannot imagine that. Nor I. <laughs> <laughs> so that's cool. So you guys had the most soul-crushing job you can imagine working in a bank, and you parlayed that into writing a comedy movie. Yep, yep. It's beautiful. And since then, I would consider you to be an actor, a writer, a director, a producer, a, a videographer, an editor, so yeah. you've tried your hands at all different forms, you know, all different places, positions, in, in front of the camera, behind the camera, on stage. Inside the camera. Literally. <laughs> it's a big camera. Yeah, it's true. And these days I'm making my money as a video editor. Nice. Yeah. What would you say is your favorite position in the movie biz? What did you enjoy the most? I mean, I love, I love acting. Uh-huh. 
that's just wicked fun. And uh, did I just say wicked? Yeah, man. Um, well, I'm from Massachusetts, so I can. I'm good with this. You're rubbing off on me. Yeah, oh, bro. And you, you have a home right on the border of that's Massachusetts, true. so it's that wicked shit is, you know, it's just uh, creeping over the Berkshires towards your your consciousness. It's on the other side of the state. <laughs> so you loved acting. Yes, but but writing is also uh, very fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, uh, you know, it's just like you're, you know, that that's more, ugh, actors going to hate me, but you know, I feel like it's more creative, more, uh-huh. a different kind of creative, uh, yeah. maybe more concrete type of creative, but also, you know, we also produced it. So there was something about that, like a, yeah, like a, like a baby, like making a baby. Yeah. You know, it was like, uh, that, there was a lot of fun in that. So maybe actor writer producer in that those are the things you enjoyed the most yep wow um and you would even sort of uh later on go on to write and direct your own short short pieces that is correct so that you were wearing every hat there was to wear yeah and you were nice enough to uh use some of my music in some of your movies which i really appreciated nice enough ah you were nice enough to give them to me. Um, every single one of my movies has has a piece of film music in it. Nice, uh, nice. Uh. <laughs> what are the names of some of your short films? I started with Death Fish. Uh huh. Which is about? Which is about a guy losing his mind in his apartment. Yeah. And uh, it's like one dude in an apartment, and uh, and he's got a fish. Yeah. Uh, fighting fish and uh, basically uh, yeah that's it, it was you sort of like reading a, Nietzsche or was that he was reading it was? Uh, Ernest Becker The Denial oh, Becker. of Death which is a fantastic book about uh, the reason everyone does what they do right in life in life okay cool and uh, at the end of the thing the guy's thinking of killing himself and his fish jumps out of the bowl to save him that's right he's gonna jump out the window and then the fish jumps out of his bowl Nice. And he hears the fish slap onto the floor, and he's like, huh? <laughs> huh? And he puts him back in his bowl, the fish lives, he sits back down in his own quote-unquote bowl. And right. that's uh, fun for the whole family. <laughs> that movie what, is. what was the one with Ian Sheehy and the bird? What's that called? That's called The Winged Cleric. Nice. Yeah, or The Winged Cleric. And Ian Sheehy is an actor friend, a uh, funny guy. Yeah, my friend since high school. Who has a, his own bird. What was his bird's name? His, his bird's name was uh, Naomi. Really? Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And the bird had a weird foot. They found the bird as like a baby on the sidewalk and like it had a broken foot and they mm-hmm. took care of it. And like everything was like, you know, every internet thing you could see would be like, oh, if you find an injured starling on the street, it'll last like three or four years. The the guy, the woman, <laughs> she she lived like 12 years. It was a wow. fantastic bird. It was the best. And I was like, I have to make a movie starring this bird. Yeah, it was really cool. And so, wait a minute, he found the bird on the street in New York City? Yeah. That's disgusting. would you pick up a bird on the street in new york city i have actually uh because he was heightened my awareness of this i i did i did find 
one, maybe two times I found like an injured like sparrow on the street. Okay. And I, uh, and I moved it aside because you could tell that like his mom was somewhere around. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it might not have been injured. It was just sort of a baby. Yeah. This thing was injured. Naomi was injured. That's amazing. Did I say Naomi? It's Naomi. Naomi, like from... Uh, yeah. Uh, like, uh, uh, what's her name? Actually, that's really uh, prescient, actually, because that's... What's her face's name in, in The Matrix there? Um, Will Smith's wife. <laughs> that's her character name in The Matrix. <laughs> Naomi. Yeah, it's... Gata um, Pinkett. Ian is Ian would be a much better guest to have on your show. Um, he, <laughs> he, he, he's a very smart dude, and like uh, you know, he'll be like, "That's the," and he's told me, but he's like, "That's the Mesopotamian goddess of blah blah right. blah." Yeah, know. and it would be a mythological name because uh, the Matrix people loved those the two sisters. They loved uh, putting in all these mythological things all over their movies. Yeah, so that would make sense. But the, as we're talking, we're, uh, you know, riding the crest of the wave of the Will Smith smacking Chris Rock and the Oscars. It's right around then as we're doing this interview. So that's fascinating. I've been really fascinated by that story because it just seems so completely insane. <laughs> <That> <laughs> thing like that could happen. Anyway, okay, so that's interesting. And you made a couple other films. Well, you, you made a cool film about this couple and they're kind of like walking through the woods together and it symbolizes like the different seasons of their of their lives or their relationship. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, I make movie, I mean, the, the feature luckily had Mark and, mm -hmm. and my friend Alex who directed it to like rain my madness in a right <laughs> <laughs> but my short films just make no sense <laughs> but yeah. that that movie is basically it's called seconds of life and okay. it's, it's basically a guy meeting a woman and in a split second he imagines their whole relationship together but he imagines they're gonna go on a walk in the woods right and as they walk all the seasons change so they start in the in the winter and then it goes right. to the spring and the summer and then when they get back in the fall and then when they get back to the cottage where they're staying it's it's back to the winter again yeah so it's both sort of uh a year together yeah. and their whole entire life together. life yeah so like the fall is sort of as they're talking it's sort of like how people in the autumn of their lives talk and in oh, the spring, really? it's all about like, oh, hey, what's your favorite color? Hey, right. like, oh, and then, you know, and then sort of like in the late summer, they're sort of like, man, don't do this to me. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit. And then they're back to the beginning and he sort of assesses it. So it's seconds of it's both seconds and a year and a month and a season. That's on. a high concept, man. Yeah, but who cares about high concepts? You know what I mean? Like I, uh, that's the problem with some some artsy movies these days. Is like, uh, say how how accessible do you want to make it to the audience? You know, I, I, how, how much I mean, do you want to feed them? Well, you have them. I mean, look, you can do those high concepts and still have normal behavior within the the story you know what i mean so in the same way that you know when we're going to talk about under the silver lake that movie presents some quote unquote normal behavior throughout it 
you know, or sort of normal-ish scenarios in a way, down-to-earth scenarios yeah. in a way. But it's dealing with all this higher stuff, so... Um, no, right. If you watch it on a very surface level, right. you'll get, you'll you'll still get, get a, story. a great movie. You'll get a funny movie with Andrew yeah. Garfield. You'll still get a story. And you'll get a, a fun story, and then you like think more, and you're like, whoa. So, I, I mean, I think it's cool when a filmmaker tries to challenge themselves to do layers, you know, or a, a high concept that, you know, but you're still going to have to tell a story. Oh, and then we did that movie. We did that movie that was a total failure. <laughs> it was called Cut the Wire that I was in. And it's like a guy who. I told you, you never to speak of this. You, <laughs> you're like a guy wearing like a like a Groucho Marx glasses with the mustache and the nose. And you're you're have like cards that read signs that send messages to like someone from like the CIA or whatever who's watching them on a, like a street camera which is you which is me and you're trying to like show like big brother that where it's that you're a human being and that so is the person working for big brother essentially yeah but that was an utter failure well, it wasn't a failure. It was yeah. no no more <laughs> or less of a failure than you never put that you never distributed that one you never shared that with the the humans. That, the, well, that, that was a Mark Lesser joint. If oh, you that will. wasn't a. That, I thought you did that one. Nope. Oh, so you're just the star of that movie. You, me, and me, and you. Right. You and I. Yeah, I remember I was supposed to cry on camera for that, and I did. I did not. That's right. We had to hit you over the head with a shovel. Yeah, you Learned kept on poking me in the eyes. Yeah. Oh. 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 So anyway, all right. So the reason I say all that is because uh, to establish uh, your character. So now I can judge you, but also that you're a filmmaker and that you understand the language of film and you give a shit about it, I would say. You know, you're interested yep. in what films potentially have to offer. I mean, you've also, we've also spent a lot of time doing theater together and doing weird theater. <laughs> We did that play ACDC together. Awesome. That, was that the first play we ever did together? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You think so? Okay. Oh yeah, definitely. And that was a crazy ass 60s play by this guy named Heathcote Williams, yep. a British writer. Yeah. And he, that is that play was like one of the first completely bananas plays I've ever done. Yes. Like everything, all the language in the play is completely fucking crazy the whole time. You start out the play uh, and in like a, a sex room with two other people, like you guys are all in like a sex machine, like yeah, orgasming together. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I I spent the first 20 minutes of the, uh, the play in like a plastic clear box covered in audio tape. Yeah. Right? Like a so you could emerge like a 30 minutes of audio tape. The... Right. And if anyone was thinking, they'd be like, was he in there the whole time? <laughs> Is there a trick floor? And the answer was yes. yes, yes. He was in there. <laughs> The whole time, and Yehuda was out on the window ledge. Right, but only 15 minutes. Right. Only 15 minutes. Another one there. of our friends was perched out on a ledge outside of the second floor of the rehearsal room that we were performing in. Um, we were doing this play, ACDC. That must have been my senior year. Your junior? Sophomore? Sophomore? Wow, okay. You had two senior years. It was the last one. <laughs> <laughs> No, it wasn't. Was it? Yes, it was the last one. But thank God I stayed for that one. You know, okay, so in fact, that year someone wrote um, an article about me in the 
the Skinmore newspaper. And so they would do a featured artist all the time, right? And so I'm in Skidmore for four and a half, five years there, and I never got a featured artist article. So at that point in time, we were either doing ACDC or I was probably doing Beckett. You were doing Beckett, we were both in that, the semester after ACDC, we were both in these Beckett shows. Yeah. You were, you were in Endgame. Yeah. And I was in Perhaps Last Tape and Endgame and with Endgame you. With me. And it, I was in a trash can. I didn't even know we had a newspaper. Yeah, so we had a newspaper, and uh, this uh, this woman wanted to do an article about me as the featured artist, and they called me Super Senior, Super Senior Phil Restino, and I'm like, wow, they must really think I'm pretty special, because <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that a Super Senior was like a five, someone on the five year I didn't know that yeah, either. Me neither. But you thought... So I thought they were saying <laughs> Super Senior Phil Restino, like this guy's amazing. Wow. No one has ever been described as this. Ego is. Um, but no, it just meant that I was uh, fucking... I almost flunked out of school. Because uh, I was doing um, Red Noses, this uh, British play. Uh, Peter Barnes was the writer. Three and a half hour long play about these clowns in the France in the 1300s during the play. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, so I got the lead in that. And... We performed it on the main stage, and I was on stage almost the entire show, so I'm on stage for almost three and a half hours. And I almost flunked out of school. It wasn't because you didn't apply yourself? I didn't give a fuck about my classes. <laughs> I applied myself to that play, dude. Sure. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. And um, so the play went amazing, I think. But yeah, I flunked Spanish, and I flunked... Uh, I might have flunked Geology. Oof, right? <laughs> Which just means I didn't give a fuck, whatever right. they were. I no, was I ignoring failed. Uh, sophomore year, I failed gym. <laughs> no spit take. I just literally did a spit take. <laughs> well, how I, did you flunk gym? Less romantic than... How'd you do it? It was, just didn't go. I, right. It was like, I went like two times and I was like, this sucks. I'm going to withdraw from the class and then... Why? At the end, they were like, "Oh, I, you're just gonna pull away." I was like, nah, "I don't need this right now. I'm uh -huh. doing things." And then, like at the end, <laughs> at the end of the year, I got my report card, and they're like, "You failed gym." I'm like, "I thought I." And then I thought back. Wait, I was like, "When did you have a gym? How did you sign up for a class that was called gym?" No, it was called <laughs> it was called swim for fitness. Oh, okay, got it. Alright, that's respectable. Failed swim for fitness. <laughs> you actually got fatter. Yeah. Yeah. And drowned twice. <laughs> anyway, we did a, a bunch of sh uh, shows, a few shows together at Skidmore, and then, you know, we got out of school and we did Dr. Shabango's Chicken Dancing Hooker Pants, the improv group with Mark. Yeah. And I was in your Vane City shows. Yeah. What was that group? Kundalini Comedy. Kundalini Comedy. Comedy. That was your improv sketch improv group. Right? Yeah. But then we also did all the, um, I don't know what you call it. Oh, well, we were in a couple Yehuda plays together. Right. Like, directed by Yehuda, me, you, James Stanley, Amy Ford. Right? That was mm -hmm. Amy's last name. And and uh, what's her name? Jesse Holly. Jesse Holly. Yeah, that was a great And a bunch cast. of other people. Ryan Bronze was in well, oh, you guys oh. later on, I didn't wasn't a part of actual the actual NTUSA. I never did any of those shows, right? Except in the band in oh, the, the Troy pre, Westfield. The pre, it was those pre ones. We did Orla, and we did five or number five or right. five. Anyway, we did these avant-garde plays in New York City in the uh, I'm gonna guess early to late '90s to early 
Aughts? When yep. do you think? The late 90s? When did um, the yes, NTUSA... No, because we had... It was 99 because we had a VHS tape of The Matrix playing on a TV. Why? Over and over. Why? Yeah. It was just, I don't know. It was just there. For and what? Just like as you walked into the space to rehearse, there was just a TV that always had The Matrix running on a loop. Really? Yeah. So that would be 99. Yeah. Or whenever it came or out even on VHS. Later. So 2008. I remember because Orla turned into five, and it turned into five. Orla was very Y2K based. Remember? Okay. Okay. And like, and a lot of it was like, it's all gonna die. We're all gonna die. Y2K. But we had like an extension in t- 2000 right. at a different space, and then after we didn't all die. <laughs> We sort of went in and reworked the play because it wasn't all about the end of the world as we know it. Really? Yeah. Well, so now I know the all. exact date. So it was like. I don't remember that at all. Straddling Y2K. Wait, wait, wait. So we did this play. It was first, it was called Orla. Well, first I did a play with Yehuda, James, and Jesse called Brains. That, that was, was a fun play. That was awesome. And then, and then we did Orla. Yeah. And that was at here? Orla was at here. Right? Yeah. In New York City. Where is here? Do you remember? Spring Street, sixth or seventh. It's it's in south, no, south of Houston. No, no, north of Houston. Oh, okay, just north though. Oh no, you're right. Spring is south. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like Ludlow or something. Spring. Oh. Spring. You actually said spring like seven times. Right. I apologize. And then we moved that show to where? Forty second Street. And that was at one of the Shishama One of the Shishama theaters, right. Which one? It wasn't at really one of the theaters, you know, Shishama. They basically, the space we did the they space in was... They raw spaces. They had these raw spaces that were, they were turning that whole block... Right, into a bank. Into a whole new block. Yeah. Or a million of right, skyscrapers. Right, because I painted on the second floor of the building. And they were fine with that because it was going to be demolished. It. It. Yeah, so they were like right. waiting for like one or two delis to like finally get their <laughs> get their lease done. And they had taken over so Shishama was a so we get, this is this is what I'm good at is coming back to explaining what the fuck we're talking about. <laughs> what Shishama yeah. is in a household name? So Shishama was a non-profit organization. Maybe they still they probably still exist in New York City. They do. And they would get raw spaces, uh, a build like business spaces or storefronts, storefronts or stuff like that that weren't being currently rented, and they would turn them into art galleries and theater spaces. And I, I even played music and up to a couple of musical right. performances. Like the, in a the few owners of, the of the buildings could write it off. Right. It's like, hey, we're donating right. this space to the arts. And some of the theaters that. Some of the spaces, at least one of the theaters that got turned into a theater space on 42nd Street between 6th and Broadway was the Peep Show space, right? Yeah. And it still was called Peep Show yeah. after, but it had literally, literally been like a porno shop. Right. And then that was gone, and then they turned that into a performance space. Right. Kundalini Mark. Comedy did a show in an old shoe store. Where? Like, same block, but it happened like that unit used That's to be cool. a shoe. And we, what show was that? That was the Kundalini Comedy Sells Out. Oh, really? That was your bid at making a television show? That was our bid at making a sitcom. That's yeah. so funny. A sitcom about an improv troupe. <laughs> but How there was, was the show? A, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Three episodes. Yeah. Oh, you did three episodes on Three it? episodes. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 
Yeah. Do you have recordings of that? We do, and I'm still waiting 22 years later for the uh, producers to call from Hollywood. They're gonna call any moment. <laughs> oh, that you did you guys? Okay, so you re, you wrote a show with your sketch improv group that was designed to appeal to television. So it was in the form of a sitcom, right? About a uh, an improv group, about a comedy group in right? New York, and so did like, perform that live right? in New York City. Exactly. What year was that? I think around the same 2000. Maybe okay. that was 2001. And um, did it ever get pitched to anybody? No idea. <laughs> Who's in charge of pitching it? Like, who's gonna get it to people, Alex? No idea. Maybe Alex. No? I don't remember. That's so funny. So you don't know if you guys had a plan beyond making the show? You know, Phil, a lot of the stuff that we did back then. Had no plan. NTUSA, Kundalini, independent weird stuff, was all about, really was about doing the stuff. And and, and like. A tenth of your mind, it was like, yeah. and I'm gonna film it, and I'm gonna right. send it to people. But it was mostly about like the create, beauty of it is that yeah, you guys like are in the moment, doing the stuff, doing the work. Like, what is the funniest thing we could say? Right. Or what is the coolest thing we could right. show? How right. can we blow minds? Right. And then the show would end, and we'd have like a tape, and we'd be like, duh, what do we do? I don't know, we should get a businessy guy to do some businessy stuff. And then like but then like a week later it'd be like, ooh, you know what we should do for the next show? Right. We should do that. Oh my god, yeah, right. As I've been doing the podcast, you started listening to the podcast and you didn't listen to podcasts, but uh, you listened to mine because you knew me. Right, And then you started coming to me and saying, oh, this is really cool what you're talking about. And what about this and the movie and Under the Silver Lake? And you started having your own ideas about what a certain symbolic moment might be or, um, you know, what certain things might mean, stuff like that. What, you know, what you were, how you're interpreting the film. And I was like, I realized that what happened to me while I was watching the film was starting to happen to you where you're starting to maybe slightly obsess over it and really get uh, not carried away, but involved with trying to really understand it, which I think is what's really fun about this movie is that it, if you give into it and give into the story, it starts to take you with it. And it has such an interesting narrative and such a fascinating mystery to it that you really start to kind of go like, well, what am I really watching here? What is he actually showing me? What does this scene mean? What does this scene mean? All that. So eventually after us talking for a little while, I was like, oh man, I gotta, you know, we should get you on the show and let's talk about things that you've noticed in the film. Now, um, what listeners are going to have noticed by now is I will have already shown them clips from our first interview, which was from a couple of weeks ago uh, where I went to your home in the Berkshires, and we had a conversation at night during a thunderstorm in front of a pool of water. We're at his palatial palatial establishment. You're gonna hear some slurring, folks. Um, I'm just drinking wine. Matt, you're drinking whiskey? That's right. Nice. So you might hear some racial slurring. Oh, but... no. All right, let's try not to let that happen. We'll see. Um, and we are in, what's the name of this building that we're in right now? You know, it doesn't really have a name. The Glass House, because it's surrounded by all windows, or it's the Bunk House. 
The bunkhouse. That's probably what it originally was, right? Because, yeah. When they built it in the 50s, they just, a uh, family from uh, New York, they lived in New York, he worked for the New York Times. Oh, wow. In 1950. So he was a communist then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the per- All right, so we're on your, this is a home that you own. Yeah, yeah. Out in the Berkshires. Close, yeah. Close to the Berkshires. Taconic Mountain Range. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. And, um... You have a cement pond on your establishment. Correct, correct. A literal cement pond. It's not a pool. Nope, not a pool. It's a pond, stream-fed. Oh, a stream-fed pond. Right, so... Wow, that is the most, like, elitist thing you'd ever <laughs> hear someone say. I didn't buy the stream. stream. Fed. It's totally stream-fed. Stream-fed. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, you have a stream going through your property. Right. Right? Yeah. It's going downhill? That's correct. Okay. And it, yeah, and it empties into this pond. And it goes out the other side of the pond, so the stream continues. The stream goes and fills up a basin of cement that was poured on the property? Yeah. Okay. Something like in the 30s or in something? The 30s. Okay. I've heard stories from old timers about, like, teams of horses dredging out the... It was really? sort of a natural If you pond. talk to people who saw it being built? No. But I did talk to this one lady, awesomely, uh-huh. um, that said when she was, she must have been like 80-something, and she said, and when I described where I lived, she was like, oh, that's Sheffield's Pond. <laughs> and I was like, what? No, Sheffield's Pool. And I go, what's that? She goes, well, the guy who owned all this land, Sheffield, he built this pond, pool, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and he used to let the neighborhood kids come and swim in it. So, so this, this was the hot spot in the neighborhood. Yeah, something like that. That's pretty cool. And it's on the side of the hill, but it's literally like someone poured, dug out a basin of, of land. Yeah. Like a like a like a like a bowl shape, essentially. Yeah. And then filled that with cement. Yeah. And then that. So is the river that empties into the pond? Is it man-made? Or? The river as well, or did they just build it where a river was? Right, they built it where the stream was. Okay. I've walked. Right, it's a stream. I've followed the stream to the top, so I found the marshy spring area. Oh, really? Where it comes from. And do you feel like you, when you see that, you're like, I'm seeing the act of creation itself? Yep. You can see bacteria like multiplying yeah, that's right. in front of your eyes. Okay. Right. That's cool. Right, in fact, uh, my wife, she started out as a little single celled organism, and I watched her crawl out of the muck. Oh my god. And turn into a. It's because you're a wizard. Yes, I'm a we determined time today. traveling wizard. <laughs> and uh, I proceeded to get incredibly drunk. It'll be really fun to listen to this as Phil in the future, and he'll be like, future what the Phil. fuck was wrong with you? Future you Phil. motherfucker, future you drank Phil. too much wine. This Phil right here, he's a nice guy. Too much wine. He's a good guy. Too much wine. I love this guy. He's the uh, best guy. thanks. So, I don't, I don't think we about. ever, What you don't. Well, I was I there, so. Nothing. No. Yeah. You were fine, as far as I know. <laughs> you seemed okay. But um, uh, as I will have already shown the listeners, um, I got more and more shit-faced. So by the end of the interview, I'm just like a, I might as well be somebody else. You know, I sound possessed. That's what's going on right there. She's the moon, and her fucking ass is the moon. Stop yelling at me. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, you were like a guy on the street corner in Times Square screaming your... <laughs> yes, my theory is... <laughs> Wake up, people! <laughs> right, I'm trying to... Yeah, I just got like posters of like aborted fetuses and stuff. And... But I was right there with you, by the way. I, uh, I ended that evening vomiting two weeks ago. Ended the interview vomiting. So it didn't go the way I planned it. <laughs> um, and you were gracious enough to agree to try to do another interview. Right, right. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, sure. here we are. Well, I mean, it's fun. Yes. Fun the talking about this freaking frick movie. Why? All right. So, so all right. So let we'll just jump into it. Why is it fun? What is it about this that's fun for you? Because I know it's been very fun for me in this really weird way that I didn't see coming. Like when I decided to do this podcast about the film, to, you know, as an excuse to start podcasting. Um, I got really into it, you know, like it just was like, wow, this really, this film just says so much to me constantly. And I'm, the more I dig into it, the more it relates to things that I've been interested in for decades. So somehow it encompasses all these ideas that I was fascinated by. Um, what is it for you? What, what, what was your way in? Uh, well, I think probably initially it was, um, uh, you know, that there's a lack of that in the in the <laughs> in the ether. Um, meaning, like, you know, very few things these days. I'm like, what? Huh? Someone's really paying attention. <laughs> They're not just selling me band aids, right? Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, art, and and it was also hidden. Yeah. Like you were like, oh, you should watch this. It's really cool. And I watched it and I was like, that was cool. And then like I was listening and you were like, this means this and that means that. And that could mean this. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, you're right. Or at least like you're onto something. Oh, there's thought behind it. Yeah. And it's, and it's so it's like, sort of like, oh, my. And a mystery. And I'm like, the mystery is in the movie. And it's like a mystery for us to like figure it out. And the, yeah. Wait, wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like not saying my life is horribly boring right <laughs> but i'm just saying that that uh, you know like oh how fun to like explore and and it takes you he is and you go along with him that that's yeah. the fun part. like he's trying to figure out a mystery and then like you're trying to figure out the mystery of the movie yeah so you're also trying to figure out his mystery while you're watching it but then afterwards you're like whoa whoa there's a, this movie is a mystery what are they what's he trying to tell me when you so when you first watched the film did you get what you watched did it make sense to you at all? It, it was, it's got the shades of, of the David Lynch, in, but more accessible. So it's got like, when you watch a David Lynch movie, you're like, if, if you're into David Lynch, um, right. <laughs> you'll be like, this is way cool visually and like story-wise, but you're like, there's a whole thing that David Lynch is trying to uh, subconsciously tell me. Mm -hmm. uh, and like uh, uh, themes that he's exploring. Well, the fun of watching a David Lynch movie is you're like, ooh wee, like I'm gonna like try to figure it out as well. So the first time I watched this movie, it had a, a hint of that because it is a very normal movie, normal sort of fun Hollywood movie, you know, fun, you know, got a lot of funny jokes <laughs> and, uh, and just, it seems regular. And then you're like, oh, there's more to this. Yeah. 
Like if you were like, oh, The Hangover is really an allegory of, of right. uh, Oedipus. Right. Uh, and you're like, what? And then I'd watch it again and be like, wow, that's so, oh, this means that and that means that. And, yeah. <laughs> and when he loses his tooth, it means. <laughs> but uh, but that, that isn't the case with The Hangover, but it is the case with this. You know what I mean? So it's fun. Well, you hear people who get into interpreting film and so often there's they will say like this is an allegory for and you hear a lot of filmmakers who say like i was trying to make a film that actually was about this right yeah. but then sometimes you watch their movies and you're kind of like you weren't really doing that at all <laughs> you know you just right. said you were because it makes you sound smart right you, you mentioned that in the pitch meeting to the costume designer right there Exactly. are loosely based. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is really loosely based on Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> you know, the interesting, I've seen some interviews with the filmmaker, although I, I, I haven't like, I didn't drive myself crazy trying to find out information about him per se, but I, really? I, yeah. I looked into him a bit. You haven't talked about this. The filmmaker. Yeah, or that you... I mean, I watched some interviews with him, but, you know, like some, like maybe the interview at Cannes or, you know, after another festival or something like that. And maybe, I, and I've read probably an interview or two. He doesn't say that. Like, he doesn't say I was really trying to blah, blah, make an allegory about, like, he doesn't go there at all. The thing that stuck out to me is that he kind of talks about how he wrote this in a sort of like a fever, almost. Yeah, that it was almost like he was possessed as he was writing this movie. You're freaking me out. And uh, maybe that his girlfriend or whatever, his partner was like, maybe like worried about him a little bit as he was writing the film, you know? But he doesn't go into like all the research that he must have done or what he was really up to, any of that shit. Like he really does not. He doesn't explain shit as an interviewee. That's interesting. By the way, there's no way that Sometimes fans or something will put things onto a movie that aren't there. There's no way that the stuff that you've been talking about, maybe like, I, I just feel like there's no way like he wasn't doing more. He was definitely was adding. It's impossible. 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 Yeah, no, impossible. no, Impossible. No, because no. there's so much, uh, and it makes you feel crazy, right? To think like, oh yeah, he re every bit is a meaningful. But then the thing that always kind of gives away that, it is meaningful is that that's what the character's doing in the movie. Yeah, and it's... Right? He's obsessed with all this stuff. And you watch it like two or three times and you're like, this is, this shot is entirely intentional. Right. <laughs> but this is in the background of this shot is entirely intentional. Yeah, right. Well, uh, yeah, like, so like when I figured out that the sequence where he meets the homeless king and goes underground and comes up and into this, you know, climbs out through a tunnel out of the underground bunkers and ends up in a, a cooler in a supermarket and drinks milk. And I figured out that that means he's being born again in that scene. <laughs> like once you see what I'm talking about and there are even people singing happy birthday in the scene and you're just like, oh yeah, that is what's happening. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no doubt. And then you start to realize, oh, so he's doing that all over the movie these symbolic stories throughout the film that 
are meant to be interpreted so that you can get what's really going on and then it just keeps on leading you further and further down the rabbit hole and even the rabbit hole is in the movie so yeah um you know what i just noticed actually i was just trying i was just re-watching a little bit before we talked he's following those three girls in the rabbit in the volkswagen rabbit uh-huh. and he's in his mustang and the Mustang, I'll eventually re- uh, reveal what that, why he's driving a Mustang, but I know why. He follows them into like down the downtown part of LA. Mm-hmm. And at one point they're driving through a tunnel. And when he's following them and they're still up in like the Silver Lake area, it's daytime, but it's like, it's like dusk-ish. You know what I mean? It's like late afternoon or something. Okay. And they drive through the tunnel, and then all of a sudden they're downtown and it's night. And then that's when they end up at this whole limbo party. So there's no way that that much time could have passed just driving through this little <laughs> tunnel down into the... Like, that would be like a 10-minute drive or something. Right. But now it's nighttime. And so I'm thinking like, oh, so he's trying to show like, you know, that they've got to limbo. Like, this is already like a journey into the underworld. Yeah, see, that's what's fun about this movie. It, I When you were just saying that, I was like, you know what? I always thought that that quote-unquote chase scene in the cars was a little long as a filmmaker. I was like, that seems seemed weirdly lully. It was a bit of it's a It's like lull. an old movie, the way that a detective would ch- would chase someone through L.A. in an old film. Right, when you're like, you know, we get it, we get it. You're, you're following him, you got it, yeah. gotcha. it, yeah. was too, it was too long, but now... Yeah. But see, that's another example of like, okay, I could watch that scene. There's probably a reason why it's that long. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like every place he passes or what is probably, you know, like you, you could, I could, I never thought of, of dissecting that scene, but probably it's all intentional. Well, they're in a rabbit and they drive through a tunnel and now it's nighttime and now they're at a party in limbo. So... I mean, it's literally like Alice chasing the rabbit down into the rabbit hole. So he's sort of underground. It's nighttime, so he's like, it's like he's in the underworld. Right, right. No, it's man. fascinating. Yeah. You had lots of great observations, so I, I really want to get into some of the ideas that you've had. And uh, we tried to do this the last time. This is probably as close as we got to talking about the movie <laughs> the last time we talked. And boy, am I really excited for people to hear how wasted I was. I think it's really embarrassing so um <laughs> you're you're really gonna do it you're gonna uh, definitely it. i'll play like little clips from it they'll have already here in fact maybe there's a clip of me talking right here <laughs> can I, can I like what a fucking genius this fucking filmmaker makes a movie that you're just like fuck yeah like someone gives a fuck about a fucking story and how to tell a story right how to tell a fucking story this motherfucker cares enough to give the public a real story, not a bullshit story that's designed to manipulate you and fuck with you and make you fucking stupider. This is a story that this filmmaker decided to make to give to the public to raise them up so that they discover deeper levels of the subconscious and the spiritual reality of the life that we are currently living together. This guy gave a fuck about us, the people who had watched the movie, and he made a movie accordingly. You can, cut, you can splice these two interviews together. Yeah, oh, that would be really confusing. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it'll be like, so Matt, tell me more about your theories. And then my voice will be like, and I always lie to you, motherfucker. (laughs) You don't know me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We had a, uh, a next door neighbor growing up who was really scary. And he came over to our house one day when I was a kid. And he was wasted outside of the, standing outside of the screen door, wasted, going, Vietnam. No. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Don't you know what they did to me? Oh, my God. Vietnam. <laughs> he was like the scariest person you'll ever meet in your life. I'm freaked out right now. So you had observations as early as the very first scene. Oh, yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember what your first observation from the first scene was? Well, it's hard to say because most of my, like, I felt like I texted you or called you, like, when I'd watch it and be like, ooh, this, ooh, that. So the first scene. When the I think, girl. I, oh, I, so I think if, if you're going with the whole uh, yes. Dionysus thing. Yes. So basically, I my, when I first, <laughs> I'm going back. Now I'm jumping around, Phil. When I first, one of my first theories, it was, about this movie was that it was a love story. Right. So like I watched it once and I was like, wow, what a beautiful sort of like, what was that? I was like, oh, it's a, it's a love story. It really is. Like he's like, it's his goal. And he like, and I, everything that later on you symbolized as something, I was sort of like, this is it. This symbolizes his old girlfriend and his, and his future girlfriend. And, mm-hmm. and I watched it again. I was like, totally. And then you had mentioned something on your podcast and I was like, oh my God. And I rewatched, I was like, the first moment of the scene, he's got this sort of, okay, it's a shot of the woman cleaning the glass. You notice in the very first scene that Jim Morrison was looking through the deed with that large-breasted woman who's cleaning the Beware the Dog Killer graffiti off of the window. Uh-huh. The very first shot. Yeah. And he, the first shot of him, the second shot is he's got this weird shit-eating grin on his face. Yeah. Like very happy, in love, sort of like... And so when I was thinking of the love part, I was like, he just loves women. And he like, he's just staring at this beautiful woman cleaning the glass absentmindedly. Jim Morrison on her shirt is looking through the D. Yeah. And who does the D stand for? You did, you told me. I want to see, I'm wondering if you remember what you told Dionysus? me. Dionysus? That's correct. And, and that, and that was a, a cool theory. But after I heard later on when you were talking about, uh, Dionysus. Yeah. I thought he was looking at the woman with a t-shirt of Jim Morrison. Yeah. Because Jim Morrison is is equated with Dionysus. Um, That's it. Many times in, in, in like the movie The Doors, there's a time where they fade from his face to a statue of Dionysus. Right. That one, that one shot the, in The, the doors. doors where his face turns into a statue of Dionysus. Yeah. Literally, they overlay overlay his face. Jim Morrison's face with Dionysus. His face is is interposed. What's it called? Overlaid. Yeah, overlaid on. With a bust of Dionysus's face. Yeah. Jim Morrison's face. And so that next time I watched it with that in my mind, that shit-eating grin was him being like, "Oh my gosh, I'm still sort of being worshipped." That's so interesting. Like, oh, that's me. I'm, <laughs> I'm on her shirt, and the and the smile on his face was fit that perfectly. It was it was funny how it could be interpreted two ways. And is it while they're on peyote? Is that what's happening? Huge. You know, I wonder Probably. why in that movie that is. Probably. I don't remember. Around the desert. 
I think it was more like like during like this press junket. I think it was more during the press junket. That's fascinating. Yeah, I don't know what I don't. I still in my my mind is open about what the smile is, what's going on in his brain. Right. You know. But your observation, like, because over the course of the episodes, you listen to me trying to figure out that first bit there with yeah. the with the shirt and the dog, you know, the word dog and her cleaning the window and Jim Morrison and how he's sort of related to Kurt Cobain being, you know, what part of the 27 club of those yeah. rock stars who died at 27. And, yeah. and, and uh, Sam, the main character, has this connection with Kurt Cobain. And then I, you know, over all this time, it took me 10 episodes or so to figure out that what my theory is, is that he's Dionysus, the main character. Yeah. And then there you are going, well, yeah, and there's Jim Morrison on her shirt at the very beginning looking through the G or the O in Dog. I can't remember. The first shot. Yeah, the very first shot. There's Jim Morrison, a.k.a. Dionysus. Yeah. So he's given the game away in the very first shot. And I didn't even I didn't even make that connection. So it was fascinating for you to hear like the information that I was giving and then be like, yeah, there it is right there. Oh, oh, you didn't realize even that, that after you had had your Dionysus no, revelation. No, I didn't make the connection between Jim Morrison and Dionysus. Oh my God. Yeah. And I was a huge fan of Oliver Stone's The Doors, even though it's kind of ridiculous in many ways, you know. <laughs> That movie's awesome, man. Movie's I don't awesome. care. I don't even care that like Kyle MacLachlan is butchering the keyboard and Raymond Zarek. Like uh-huh. he's doing like the robot version of Raymond. Zarek. It's like if Raymond Zarek was a robot, this is how he would have acted. And if you could listen to ri- interviews with Raymond Zarek, he's like, I'm not like that at all. Like there's nothing like how I act at all. Like they got it all wrong. I mean, Val is just really awesome. Yeah. In that movie, he's the best. What a role. I think that role ruined him, probably. It's hard to top. Right. Although he did play Elvis in True Romance. Yeah, but he's barely on him. He's not even on screen, really. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Yeah. But um, I think that that that's the kind of role that maybe would break you. You know, I mean, you know, like, Val didn't, doesn't necessarily have, like, the greatest rep. Like, he, he seemed like a troubled or troublesome actor from then on. Yeah. After that movie. And uh, so I wonder if that movie kind of like made him nuts or whatever. You know, it just broke him a little bit. You know, certain roles will just kind of get you. Yeah. Yeah. But he gave, he clearly like completely gave himself over to the role too. I thought like, you know, like what could, that was what a real actor does is what he did with that, that movie, I thought. So, yeah. Anyway, but there you were pointing it out. Like there's Dionysus, Jim Morrison as Dionysus. Yeah, I guess I did. On a shirt at the beginning. So I, I was like, oh, ma- fuck, I didn't even, that reinforces my theory. Yeah. So beautiful. And I think because of that movie, when I see that sort of face of Jim Morrison, I instantly think Dionysus. You really do? I really do. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, who's, it's sort of like, who's that a picture of? Either Jim Morrison or Dionysus. Uh, in a really? Second. And then my mind goes to obviously Jim Morrison. Don't even think the other thing. <laughs> oh, see, I always kind of go Jim Morrison or Val. <laughs> sure. I guess I guess Val would be the third choice. Yeah. But all right. So there. But there's a thing right there too. Is that Hollywood is promoting Dionysus in the mid '90s? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's this huge high-profile movie, The Doors. Yeah. And one of the main symbols 
that Oliver Stone is showing in the film is that Jim Morrison is the modern Dionysus, right? Yeah. He's a god. He's like a, a rock god. He, he's living this wanton lifestyle. And uh, what is it? A long, prolonged derangement of the senses to achieve the unknown. I believe in a slow, <laughs> overwhelming of the senses to achieve the unknown. Yeah, what is that? I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. I believe in a long, yeah. slow duration of the But then he's like, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. Yeah. It was somewhere in the middle of it. <laughs> but that's glorified in the movie. Even though he dies, you know, it's, you it's know, a Bill, tragic- I'm thinking about this also, the, uh, that's a, a theme that is that has always bugged me in movies, is that the, the uh, many times the free thinker, the, the unique mind, the open spirit. They have to die. They have to, yeah, exactly, die. Yeah, it's like it's they Hollywood spends a lot, and it used to bug me in the '90s so much, and in the, in the actually still, <laughs> you know, if they if you if you show someone that thinks outside the box and goes a little crazy, yeah, they will be lauded, but then there will be an eventual downfall. Yes, I mean, so many things. What the Libertine is a movie. What's that? It's like a Johnny Depp movie, but it's like some guy who just like, I'm, I'm living free. I'm not gonna like pay attention to your rules. And then uh -huh. he dies of like syphilis in the 1800s or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's a theme I see in Hollywood a lot, which is like, oh, are you are you an interesting person? Are you, are you thinking outside the box? Well, you'll be put in your place. It's a great thing, but you'll be put in your place. And same thing right. with, uh, with Sam in the movie. Yeah. That even happens to him. Although- He doesn't die though. He, uh, I mean, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, this movie is subverting even that. You know what I mean? I don't know if he's put in his place because- Right, maybe it is subverting that, exactly. It doesn't have the, the clean cut ending of- a... Well, I know what the ending means, so I don't think he's being put in his place. All right, well then good. Then yes, then this movie is acknowledging that arc and then Changing mm -hmm. it. Subverting it. Yeah. Yeah, because what the, in my theory, you know, with this whole Dionysus thing is that this is a mystery school teaching in a way. So they're kind of, re they're telling the story of Dionysus, which is essentially the story of Jesus. So it's like man becoming God. And so by the end of the film, it might seem like he's been put in his place because now he's pretty much homeless, but what it actually means is something entirely different, and it's sort of a triumph, actually. I mean, he does also have a very shit-eating, triumphant grin on his face in the last shot of the movie. Yeah, it's yeah. weird, but I know what it is that he's doing in that last shot and what it really means, so I'll be excited to reveal that to people soon. Come on, just do it now. I can, I can't Come do on. it. I can't do it. Hurry do up. It. But it's, uh, hurry up. <laughs> do it. But so it's fascinating. Yeah, they're sort of subverting it. But what do you, so what, and, and, and part of my theory is that this Dionysus thing is sort of like a Hollywood religion. Sure. You know what I mean? So that they worship this God somehow and they're practicing that, you know, like theater itself was sort of designed for Dionysus as a way to worship Dionysus. And so they're kind of carrying on this tradition of that in Hollywood. And that that's what the movie is sort of showing is that it's the modern day equivalent to these Dionysian mystery schools from back in Greek and Rome and Egypt and all that. What do you think, like, why do you suppose Hollywood's promoting 
constantly trying to promote, because I mean, we're, we're at least pointing out that as early as the 90s that Hollywood's promoting this Dionysian idea with the Doors movie. And you can go all the way back to the 60s and see that Hollywood's promoting the same thing through the actual, what's it called? Um, God way, damn Rebel, it. Rebel Without a Cause, another example of a guy thinking out of the box. But Which is clearly referenced in this movie. Clearly referenced. Just thought I'd, sorry, keep going. Yeah, all right, so that's a good example. So there it is, as back as early as Rebel Without a Cause. But even, you know, like in the 60s with the whole hippie movement, that's all kind of actually being semi-manufactured out of LA, out of the Laurel Canyon scene. And it turns out that a lot of the musicians that became like the famous, like hippie rock stars coming out of the Laurel Canyon scene in the 60s, all of their families, Jim Morrison included, their families are all like military and CIA and stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of them are coming out of these military families or these CIA uh, connected families. So they're almost like being placed in these positions of influence in the 60s to influence the culture. Um, and then what you see being seen promoted is that whole Dionysus thing of sex, drugs and rock and roll. So there's LA promoting it in the 60s, you know? Yeah. You're t and you're pointing it out with uh, Rebel Without a Cause. When was that made? 60s. Yeah. So here's this Dionysian I thing that's why. going on. I don't know why Hollywood does that, but if they do do it, uh -huh. they definitely make the, the protagonist fall. Why do you think? Why, do they, why does the protagonist know. have they to fall? They promote it and then they make them fall. Why? Um, I don't know. What do you think? Guess. Take a guess. Well, you know, it's it's almost like it's almost like it's sort of keeping you in your place. It's like truth, ultimate truths. They're they're good, but but it comes at a price. So mm -hmm. like you you can you can do it. You can look, <laughs> but if you get too close, like Icarus, you'll 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 fall to earth. Yeah. There is one exception, which is what? sort of rom coms. Okay. Like any, like any sort of like offbeat character became the main, the, the most popular kid <laughs> sometimes. Like in like um, those silly 80s rom-com. <laughs> well, you'll notice in those movies that it's always an outcast, an outsider, and a nerd. Yeah. It's obviously, obviously those are the screenwriters, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> they, they're rejects, yeah. you know, but they uh, their uncle works in Hollywood and so they're able to get a job. <laughs> What do you know? What do you know? And so there's that whole theme being reprised over and over again of this outcast nerd reject getting over on society finally. Yeah, I mean, is it is Hollywood saying, <laughs> or is Hollywood just the sort of mirror of society, or is it society that sort of like wants this truth, this craziness? Hollywood is the mirror. And some of it is just a mirror, and the mirror again is related to the moon. No Under doubt. the silver lake, the lake is the fucking moon! <laughs> it also could be culture shaping, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, let's sure. keep on promoting the idea of like, don't dream too far. Yeah. Because if you dream too far, you're gonna die, you'll pay for it. So stay in your lane. Stay in your lane, mister. It's fun to watch someone try it. But don't you try it. Yeah.
And in some ways, that's maybe what Hollywood is kind of for, is like to externalize the fantasies for the public so that the public doesn't get too carried away with themselves. Yeah. You know, it's catharsis. Right. You can, you know, you don't have to go to a crazy <laughs> orgy or drug-filled rave. Right. Just watch this person do it, but there's always the next part. <laughs> right, right. You'll fall. Yeah. And behind all that is Hollywood being like, but we're going to do it. Right? Yeah. That's all you ever hear is like, you know, them doing whatever the hell they want to do. I mean, even the whole thing with Will Smith recently is kind of the perfect example of that. Here's a guy just fucking like acting like he's like a cowboy. And, you know, a lot of people have have taken time to try to dissect things like the Oscars and the Super Bowl halftime show and things like that to show that they, those are ritual events as well designed to influence culture and affect uh, as many consciousnesses as they can because they get so many eyes on them. So those are also like potentially ritual events that some sort of secret religion is using to affect change in the culture and to just screw with us in different ways. Yeah. And so you could even look at what happened with Will Smith and Chris Rock as being like a, a planned event that was designed to stimulate a certain response from the public. And it also could be there to distract people from something else that might be going on, you know, in the government or something like that. Right. So. Anyway, but I mean, there's that guy like acting like he can just do whatever he wants. And in some ways he kind of got away with it, didn't he? Well, we'll see, I guess. Right. But it's just fascinating that there it was just kind of played out like, that's not how you behave. Hey, who knows why the this Hollywood is so crazy? This and the Hollywood. movie, and the movie is yeah. If if there's one obvious commentary on the movie, it's like this is about Hollywood mainly. It's also about this and about love and about you know the hero's journey. But like it's yeah, it's like Hollywood. <laughs> uh, do you remember you you pointed out that one moment where? Sam has made it to the hut. Yeah, my favorite part of the movie. Where the final man is and the three women are, and they get Sarah on that weird video phone, which I find hysterical. Awesome. That is a very David Lynch move, that video phone. Yes, that, that is. He's like, you know you're gonna die down there. He's talking to her. She's like, why are you look why were you, you barely know me? Why were you looking for me? And right. He's like, you know you're gonna die down there. Meaning like she's been buried alive and she's like, that's it for her, right? Yeah. She goes, might as well make the best of it, something like that? Exactly what she says. And then you said, what happens? They cut to what? No, she goes, it's like the moment where like, he, this is the end of his journey. He's like, can I help you? And she's like, basically like, nope, I'm down here. She says, might as well make, uh, might as well, I'm stuck down here, might as well make the best of it. Yeah. That cuts to him and he says, yeah, something like me too uh-huh and then it cuts a very straight cut to the hollywood side for like one second for like no reason cuts right back to him so it's sort yeah. of like he's stuck in hollywood like, yeah it is very uh, that's a sort of hollywood yeah it's like and i thought that was a beautiful you so you pointed that out to me i was like man i never noticed that at all it was so weirdly shocking and What's it doing there, that little cut, right? Yeah. 
And so obviously, like you're saying, the filmmaker is like, it's referencing Hollywood the whole time. Yeah. And this sort of conspiracy, this weirdness underground, you know, underground underneath Hollywood. Yeah. And maybe he's kind of saying, you know, like everyone wants to be in on the inside of Hollywood, right? And to be one of these admired, famous, rich people. But then you find yourself on the inside of it and you find out what it really is. And now you're stuck there. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? There's no getting out. <laughs> right. And now you got to figure out how to make the best of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's really brilliant. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sort of explaining your explanation back to you, but <laughs> no. I really thought that was really insightful on your part that you recognize that and saw that as a message from the filmmaker to the viewer. It's the weirdest cut. Yeah. It's the, it's the weirdest jump cut. Yeah. Out of no, and then they're back. And it's also, a, in my opinion, the like, pinnacle of the romantic arc of the movie. All right. So let's talk about that. Cause that is maybe, I feel like you ha might have the most insight and in related to that idea. So it, you, you, you started talking early on about the romance of this film and the feeling. You start maybe you start you were like pointing out that initial meeting between Sam and Sarah where she invites him into her apartment and they're watching How to Marry a Millionaire or whatever it's called. <laughs> I no, I just think that the whole like my first viewing and like sort of what it was to me was this really like beautiful love story. This guy's looking for love and he like finds this like perfect woman and then uh, he loses her and then he tries to get her back at the end. But um the first, uh, that first scene is such a, a pure, pure lovey love. You know, he's having sex like right before that. Uh huh. Very sort of stark view, but he falls in love with this. They're just sort of playing. It's a very innocent type of uh, dreamlike love. Right. You know, and then the the end also that that goodbye at the end is very right after right after the Hollywood sign. <laughs> He's, he's like, goodbye. He's like, okay, well, this is like a tragic Shakespearean sort of like, they passed in the night and he was like, completely, you know, very innocent love. And then it's like, and he has the, the, the wherewithal at the end to sort of give her what she wants, mm -hmm. what she wanted. And it was a wonderful mm -hmm. sacrifice. It was, a, it was neat. It's an interesting word that you use right there. Sacrifice? Yeah. Can you talk a little more about what that feeling of that innocent love is? I mean, that was, I felt like that was, it is like a super important thing in this movie. There's purity, this sort of pure love that they're able to depict. It's almost chased. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. You know, can you talk a little bit more about it? Cause you, it seemed like you had some real insight about what that vibe is or what it, you know, like everyone experiences that. Like, what do you think? What is that? What is that sort of chaste, pure love? Why is it important? I, I, I'm, 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 my, my lips are flapping and no, no noise is coming out. I'm like, it's <laughs> uh, you, you have something there though. And I know that you identified something rightly, I thought. And I, I want to see if we can get, dig a little deeper into that. Well, at one point I realized that that last moment where he's saying goodbye to her. 
uh-huh. combined, if you were to like take those two scenes and slap them together. The scene where they're in her bedroom watching the movie. Right. And, and then, then the we, scene where he's on the video phone with her near the end. Which of the are the film. only two scenes where they're in together. Yeah, I think you're right. Right? Yeah. I mean, he's looking at her once, but it's the only time they're together. Yeah. Yeah. And and it see and it really reminds me of of many sort of dreams I have, vague sort of love dreams. What is that? <laughs> so tell me more about that. Well, it's just like you know they're not like sex dreams. They're just like you're sort of like oh you meet this woman and you're like so like comfortable with each other and yeah and, and just like you're 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 exploring each other's uh, and then sort of at the end of a dream. Uh, you know, like, well, I gotta go. Right? Okay. Well, wasn't this sort of fantastic? What a wonderful feeling I had throughout this dream. And then it's like, okay, well, if you have to. Oh, and I used to also have dreams where I would have to protect someone. They were like... Okay. Once I had a dream where it was like Britney Spears. Sometimes I'll be like weird things like Britney Spears. I love it. Keep going. It was like I ran into Britney Spears and she was like freaking out. Someone was following her. I'm like, okay, well, here, hide here. And then we're talking and like, it's weird that it's Britney Spears, by the way. It is weird. Yeah. And then at the end, they're like, okay, I'm good. And you're like, but okay, our, our time together was so sweet. But okay, if you have to go, yeah, I'm not going to be a jerk and try to hold you back. Bye. It's not about getting laid. It's not about getting laid and it's not about possessing. It's the it's the the ideal. It's the almost a mythological ideal of it's chivalry. It's that chivalry idea of falling in love, right? Where they kind of like dedicate, like the knight dedicates himself to the memory of the to the honor of some fair maiden. Maybe and maybe they never uh, are actually a couple or anything like that. But it's this sort of like chaste, adoring love that kind of like illustrates the ideal of innocent love. I'm, I'm with you. I'm... You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's so interesting to see that being placed in the middle of this movie while this, uh, this guy's like fucking and <laughs> drinking and shoving eggs into little kids' faces <laughs> and punching a kid in the dick. And that is like, the greatest scene in the history of ever. Oh my God, you know, like... There's so much, I mean, he's naked in a, in a lake with this other woman and they get shot to death. And it's like, it's all just this crazy fucking shit, you know? Um, that's a theme. He's murdering in, people. That's a theme <laughs> in a lot of movies is, uh, or a bunch are like, um, you know, sort of like two people get together and like fall in love and then they like look up into the world of where they are. And you're like, oh, I'm in this world. So a lot of movies, there's like a love story and then it's like, Oh, but I owe this money to this gangster, so. <laughs> right. You know, like like true romance. True or, romance, yeah. Right, or. Um, and there it is again, true romance. So there's like a, in the midst of all this fallen activity is this pure love. Which is the driver of the movie and. The driver. And also so brief, these two teeny scenes. <laughs> yeah. But without that, there's no movie. Right. Well, that's like right. That's like the like surface motivation, but it, but it's fantastic. So I've uh, done this long interview with my sister about uh, Dante, mm -hmm. 
And Dante's entire journey is following this woman, Beatrice, that he's in love with. I did not know that. How did I know? Yes, and I think that Beatrice might actually be a real woman that he had developed some sort of, you know, chivalric love about. And that maybe back in those days, they would choose a woman to be their muse, essentially. That's the word I was trying to get to. Muse. So there's all this mythological god and goddess stuff. And so Sarah is his muse. So that's an idyllic love that motivates you to pursue an, an enlightened state in a way. It like motivates you toward, to move towards higher and higher levels of consciousness. So it's like the divine other. It's almost like trying to find, it's like the Holy Grail. It's like, uh, and the Holy Grail is symbolic throughout this whole movie as well, because there's all this, the Holy Grail is always related to water symbolism and there is Sarah in the water all the time. So it's this divine, the divine other side. So he's the divine male and she's the divine female. And the combination of their two energies creates divinity itself, creates the Godhead. And that's the motivation of human consciousness to move towards finding the divine other side of the self to achieve completion. And that completion yields enlightenment. And so ultimately that, in my opinion, is what this movie is doing. It's sort of secretly about that in a way. And so you had a really nice, you did a great job of like pointing out like, here's this guy demonstrating this weird chaste love for this woman that motivates his actions throughout the film. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's really important. It's so important to what this movie's about and, and what motivates him. And, um, right. If like a friend of his, like took his watch and he's like, I gotta find my friend to get my watch back. Right. That wouldn't have been a, a good as journey. No, he has to be obsessed with this woman that is out of his reach. And you know, the ultimate pinnacle. Yeah. What you want to look for. Yeah. Love, love, love. But it's that kind of a love. It's that almost chaste dreamlike love that you're pointing out. You know, I thought it was interesting when you're talking about you wake up from these dreams and I know exactly what you're talking about. And there's this sadness that you have when you fall in love in a dream and you wake up and you realize that it was just a dream. Yeah. And it, there's a feeling of like a beautiful, sometimes if you fall in love in a dream, you wake up and you have this beautiful, fulfilling feeling of having fallen in love. But then you also have that sense of like pure loss as well. And none of it's real. And so uh, it's just a fascinating thing that I think that, again, you're doing a nice job of really pointing out like this kind of like higher dimensional experience that is not based in physical reality. It's something else. Yeah. It's idyllic. It's also sad that you, uh, you know you're about to forget that feeling. It's gonna leave your your bones. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that's also sad. Yeah. But yeah, but it's so important, right? Yeah. It it's like a child. You know, it's like when you f have like a crush on a girl when you're a kid or something. Yeah. You know, like you might never see that girl ever again. But there's something real about it. It's beautiful because it's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Romeo and Juliet, like you mentioned, like how dumb they are, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
Like, if they just waited a little while longer, like, all that shit wouldn't Chill have... out. Jesus. Yeah. Relax. You'll be okay. You'll get sick of her in a week. <laughs> so I think that's beautiful, though. I really like that whole idea. And I do think you're right. I really think that that's super important to this film. Dude, this was it. We did it. Like, we, we did a podcast? Um, yes. First of all, yes. <laughs> we fist bump? We fist bumped it out. That's because Max? he has bed germs. <laughs> what? You have bed germs. I don't Me? Want, I don't want to touch your palm. Why did you so, say that? I'm joking. You motherfucker. <laughs> we fist bumped. <laughs> How I thought, dare you? <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> you fist bumped me and then you, and you then fucking... I, then I blamed you that you, you wanted to fist bump and not How dare touch you? palms. Is there other stuff that you've been noticing lately or that you have noticed in the past that you can think of that you thought, you know, was a, like a, your own personal revelation of like a, a certain moment in the film? I mean, that what. I mean, the, the whole film such a mystery that like, I, I feel like, you know, it's fun. It's like, I'll have revelations. And then I'd listen to your podcast and be like, he got it. That's what I do. <laughs> like, you felt that too. Like, you know, just so. Is there one that you can remember? Just that like a cool like one that? is just like when she gets shot in the, when they're swimming in the lake. Yeah. And it, and it looks like the cover of the first magazine he ever masturbated to. Right. It's like, ugh, beautiful. It's like, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing that it comes around like that and it's like a fantasy made real. Yeah. Oh, I also you know? showed you that uh, that one picture when he's on the way to see the the musician and it's okay. very like superimposed. It's almost like a painted backdrop. Yes, yes. I was and where like, did you that say that was? exactly like The Wizard of Oz. Oh my God, that's right. And I sent you two screen caps and it took yeah. two seconds and they were like exact. Not it's exact, amazing. But it's like... See, because I, I look at that as... Uh, uh, um, what's that famous movie? Um, Rosebud. Uh, Miss Citizen Kane? Yes. Or Zapped? One of those two. I don't think... Is Rosebud and Zapped? No, I'm joking. Oh. <laughs> you know, the greatest movie of all time, Zapped. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's that kid's name? Willie what? Willie Ames? Ames. There you go. You thought that was a a, a, a Rose Buddy Citizen Kane shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely an old timey reference. I no, yes, I thought that that scene, that moment where he's walking towards the matte painting of the giant mansion, is sort of a Citizen Kane reference. Then you juxtapose that image with the painted backdrop image of the, the Emerald City, of Emerald. them walking towards the Emerald City and yeah. the Wizard of Oz, and it really, I think you're right. Yeah. I, it, it's there. It's there. Let's just put it that way. I think he seems like he's referencing it. And the first time I saw saw that saw the movie, I was like, well, that's an interesting shot. And it sort of rang familiar. Right. And the movie goes forward. And then like two viewings later, I was like, that looks exactly like the Wizard of Oz shot. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Have you thought of any other reference, film references that you were able to spot? You know, I've, I've, you know, I love, I love movies, and I made a few, but I don't. I, would, I never took like history and classes and stuff, um, so not really. I mean, just a couple great, cool camera moves. And was there a camera move that you that stood out? Yeah, there's one where you, where you like to like show anxiety. You sort of like, you move the camera back while you zoom the lens in and it gives this weird, that rack focusy thing. I'm like, that's a great, we're like, no one uses that awesome, cool shot. 
but it works. It's so awesome. I wonder when who invented that. Like, I wonder if it was Hitchcock or what. I don't know who invented it, but you know, I feel like I invented it. I was making, I was playing with a camera <laughs> and making a movie, and I was like, "Ooh, if I roll this back and do this, that looks cool." And oh, did you ever that. you put that into a movie? It's in the Death Fish. Oh, really? <laughs> it is nice. Yeah, that kind of shot has an actual name, but I, yeah, I can't think I'm sure. what it is. Yes, I know not. But that is a classic. And that's from uh, when the uh, squirrel falls out of the sky at the beginning. Is that from that? Yeah, and you see the entrails poking out. And uh, as I've later revealed in like ancient Greece, they would use animal entrails to divine things. And the way the gods would talk to you is through your dreams. And he has soon after a dream of the dog with its guts ripped open. And then this guy dressed up as Sarah eating the rich guy's entrails. Is that a shot in the movie? In Under the Silver Lake, yeah. He has a dream of, he comes upon her dog and the dog is dead with its guts like open. And he steps over the dog and then he comes up to someone in Sarah's dress and her wide brim hat. Right. And like ripping the guts out of Jefferson Sevens, essentially. The rich guy who disappears with her into the underworld. That's crazy. And she turns around and it's some guy with a big nose and blood all over his face. And he's got like entrails in his mouth and he starts barking at him. <laughs> when you speak the speak out a scene in this movie, it sounds like a crazy movie. But when you watch <laughs> it, it is a crazy movie. movie. Very normal movie. <laughs> right. But that those scenes are all about the entrails is the way in the ancient past they would use divination through reading the entrails of animals. Right. And then also the way the gods would talk to you is in your dreams. So he's sort of combining the two things there. This movie shows us that Hollywood is designed through the psychic level, the fourth dimension of the moon. This movie is designed to show us what the gods are up to. Now, supposedly, I believe I like it's in theory. Buddhism that they say, beware the layer, beware the realm of the gods. This is interesting. This is an interesting The theory. realm of the gods. Continue. Because the realm of the gods is the fourth dimension, so it's the iconic level of drama. So there's humans. Of, of the bifurcation of duality. The fourth dimension is the cosmic level of duality. It's the iconic level of duality. So there's humans, and yeah. then, the, then there's gods on the next level? No, the gods are occupying the fourth dimension, the dimension of time. Uh -huh. And they occupy that level because that's the last level where they can have dominance. And then? And then you be, go beyond duality, and now you're into universe. Unity, unity consciousness, the fifth dimension. So they're saying, beware so love, the layer of the gods. Love is the fifth dimension. And the realm of the gods is the fourth dimension. The realm of time, which is eternity, is the connection to eternity. This is what I've realized. And that's part of what the post-relevant movement is. The post-relevant movement is the movement for the end of the end of time, right? By the way, that is my favorite thing ever. Thank you so much. Go on. So the end of the end of time yeah. is no more time. Yeah. So it's eternity. So the post-relevant movement, my friends, and thank you for listening, 
is a movement to eternity. The, the consciousness, the experience of eternity, this is what I realize. What? Eternity is the fifth dimension. Eternity is the recognition through consciousness that we are sparks of the divine and those sparks of the divine live on forever. And so your body exists and you age and you die, right? But there's a spark inside of you that is Matt. Hopefully. Or Max Flackman, if you will. Hopefully. I say yes. And when you die, Max Flackman goes somewhere else. There's an essence of Max Flackman that it lives eternally. The fifth dimension. So the realm of the gods, which Hollywood tries to use as a way to dominate consciousness of humanity, is the Anunnaki, the creator gods who manufactured humanity genetically back in Sumeria or earlier. And we are essentially their slaves, okay? We were designed to serve the gods. And I've even heard the like- Fourth a, dimension gods. Yes, and I've even heard an interview, an interview with a woman who was in the secret space program. And she said, when you meet these Anunnaki, these god beings, you wanna kneel to them. You wanna kneel? You want to kneel to them, that when you meet them, you're so overwhelmed by their presence that your inclination is to kneel in subservience to them. Okay? Awesome. And the Anunnaki are these beings that come from, are at least depicted, depicted as early as Sumeria or Mesopotamia, mm -hmm. Sumeria. And there are these gods and they're depicted in visual like stone pictographs. Like they'll be twice the size as the humans talking to them in the stone drawings. Yeah, giants. They're fucking giants, okay? Listen, this is where this movie has taken me, <laughs> as now I believe in giants. What have you done to me, this movie? <laughs> yeah, okay, anything else, Max, that stands out to you in this movie? Any other little piece or reference or theme or anything else that really has been ringing a bell for you? There are tons, but I really, I literally, I could, we could talk, Forever. The owl lady blows my mind. Why? I don't know what's happening. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like so out there and so like familiar too. What's familiar about it? I don't know. I don't know. Huh. It's also got like a creepy like I've had that sort of dream vibe too. Where you're like You've had an owl lady attack <laughs> you in your no, dreams? That's the specific owl lady. Uh-huh. Um, just the sort of that creepiness is conveyed in this movie. Just the way she walks yeah. is really cool. Yeah, it's like a little, it's like dreamlike and creepy. And it's that interesting thing of like, it's sort of sexy, but it's, it's like sex and death combined, right? Yeah. You know, she's like the, like if you hook up with the wrong woman, you know, it could be the end of you. Yeah. <laughs> and she's got the same body type as a lot of the other women in the film. It's all confusing. That whole scene is weird. It's just a great, it's just a great, uh, it's a great film. It's gorgeous. It's fun. It's a game. It's a game. We're playing the game right now. Thank you, filmmaker, because we're you, filmmaker. having a fun time playing this game. Yeah, and you know, and 
The cool thing is even like, just to refresh my memory, I was watching a little bit before we talked and I was still noticing things. It's awesome. It's so insane, dude. <laughs> and that even if maybe you've noticed it before, like you'll come back and see it and like, re-notice it all over again and think you've just discovered it in that moment. Yeah. It's really amazing. Um, it's, a, it's a real feat of filmmaking. Uh, again, like as usual, I'm like, how did this movie get made? Who wrote, like, like who signed off on it? Well, what you said about also him writing it in a fever dream. Right? Interesting as well. Well, a friend of mine pointed out, like even if everything that I've said is not real, like even if he didn't mean to do it, that maybe he was tapping into the collective unconscious and that it was, something was writing it through him. That's a big if. Right? If he's not doing that. I don't believe it. I think that he's doing it on purpose. Yeah. But I do find that sometimes things work through you in the art. So it could be some combination thereof. Right. Well, like what I was saying with the like, love story, yeah. He, he might not have been like, I'm thinking of like this pure, you know, Dante-esque mm -hmm. uh, vision of love, but his view of how he would tell that love story came out as that. You could think of it like that. It didn't need to be like on purpose, like calculated, but mm -hmm. but in his, in his brain. You have to assume that in the same way, they kind of say like, sometimes they say the myths are based on the stars. And so people's interpreting the constellations and the stars and relating the way the stars move and how the stars relate to each other and they created stories around that. But then they also say that the stars are inside of you or the myths are inside of you. So in some ways the myths are uh, externalizations of subconscious or unconscious uh, aspects of our personalities as human beings and of these internal journeys that we are programmed in a way to go through and the myths are the externalization of those internal or subconscious desires or drives that we have yeah you know and in like maybe like the most obvious is like the whole oedipus thing or something like that but that all the myths are doing that yeah and just cycling through the years yeah, so so it's like the myths are externalized stories of different aspects of human nature. So, yeah, in a way, like, he couldn't help but write that kind of a story. Like, those are the stories that, like, for some reason, like, why is Hollywood always repeating that story of, like, here's the guy and he breaks all the rules, but then he has to die. That's like, maybe that's written inside of us somehow. And so that's why we keep telling that story over and over again, because it is like Cosmic truth. some aspect of human nature that has to be played out. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool, man. All right. Well, we, we can, we can end it there unless there's anything else that you want to talk about. No. Okay. I was, Great. I was going to make a bad joke. Sure. What? What was your I was, joke? I, I didn't have the joke, but I was like, do I insert a joke here? And how fast uh -huh. can I come up with one? Well, look, uh, maybe what we can do is that you can think about a joke. And then when you come up with it, I'll get back in touch with you and we'll record you saying the joke. All right. Sounds great. All right. So if it happens, then here's Matt's joke inserted right here. Oh, why, hello, mister. <laughs> Hey, it's Mr. Hello, Mr. Mr. R. 
Mr. The Inevitable Mr. R. <laughs> I had a feeling you'd be calling me. <laughs> You're on. You're being recorded right now. Boy, do I sound okay? Oh, my God. Incredible. I'm having an orgasm. So, uh, the rumor has it that you have a joke for us. You stated in the second interview that you would have a joke for us. I don't remember what the context of the joke, like why you said you were going to have one, but... You did offer to have one, and I said in that interview that I would insert the joke in this one segment. And so right now, the listeners are listening to me talk about how you have a joke in the segment. I've inserted it, and so now what's going to happen is you are going to tell your joke. Okay. Okay? You ready for it? Yeah, I, I think so. Let me make sure. Yeah, okay. All right. So a guy walks into a psychiatrist's office and he's wearing cellophane pants. And the psychiatrist turns to him and says, well, I can clearly see your nuts. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Glad you like it. Do you have one more just in case? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Let's hear another one. I got, I got two. All right. Give me two more top of my head. All right, so that was number one. Here we're getting a triple decker, so to speak. This one's a clean one. You can sort of tell to your kids. Okay, I'll have to have some kids first. <laughs> Not your kids. Oh, okay. One's kids. One's kids. All right, so uh, how do you make a tissue dance? You put a little boogie in it. Oh. Uh, Disgusting. Kids, kids are stupid. The <laughs> kids are stupid. Quote Matt Kalman, 2022. And then here's a here's a longer one, slightly longer one, if you like that kind of one. So, and this one's been told many times. All right, let's have it. Here we go. Number three. You're getting a three for listeners. You're so lucky. Matt Kalman, joke number three. Here we go. Okay, let's see. So, let's see if I get this one right. A guy goes into a, a bar. And, he, and uh, at the bar, there's a, a piano player, but he's like miniature. He's like 12 inches tall. And the guy turns to the bartender and he's like, excuse me, can you, what's what's going on with this, uh, this piano player over here? And he's like, uh, well, he's like, I have this genie out back. Uh, and uh, if you want, if you want, you can go and uh, he'll grant you uh, one wish. He's like, really? Yeah, yeah, just go back there. He goes, but you know, you have to be careful. He's a little hard of hearing. He goes in the back room. All of a sudden, pouring out of the back door uh, comes a, a thousand ducks. And the guy comes running out. And he's like, what the heck? What the heck? He's like, I asked for a thousand bucks. And all of a sudden, I got a thousand ducks. And the bartender goes, yeah, I know. You think I really asked for a 12-inch pianist? <laughs> um, wait, I think the part of the... The uh, joke that I missed was that the person is really small. Yeah, oh yeah, you did. Yeah, what did? What, where did that? When did that? Ha was that the beginning of the joke? Yeah, the guy comes in and sitting on the bar next to him is this twelve-inch piano player. Okay, yeah, I missed that part. All right, you'll have to use the first one. Ah, <laughs> uh, they're all going in, man. Oh, jeepers! Great work. <laughs> uh, I'm excited for you to hear this episode. It's pretty. It's going to be pretty crazy. Looking forward to it. I'm doing like a Pulp Fiction kind of 
backwards and forwards in time sort of thing. Oh boy. Yeah, the second interview is very clean and, and you're well-spoken. And the first interview, I'm a raving lunatic and it's very rambly. So the second interview is a great uh, framework to fit in pieces of the first interview. So it's, it'll be neat. <laughs> to the listener, if you've lasted this long with us, clearly you can hear that we've, we're inebriated. Yeah. Pulp fiction Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just saying that, but... Oh, it's good. Yeah. I myself carried this uncomfortable lump of metal up my ass <laughs> 12 years. I hand it to you. Did he, <laughs> did he have it for Twitter? And it goes, ding! Something like that. When he grabs it? 20 years? 5 years? I don't know how long it was, but that's 12 years seems like a long time. That does seem like maybe a couple months. He died of dysentery, gave me the watch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Max. You got it, buddy. Talk to you soon. I'll talk to you back on the episode. All right. See ya. We now return to our regularly scheduled episode. And if it doesn't happen, then I'm just going to overlay um, the bird saying the word Oliver. <laughs> and you'll, and you'll never, never tell the difference. No, that's your joke. <laughs> Dude, uh, honestly, thanks. I'm glad we got to have this conversation. I mean... You know, we had these really organic conversations about this whole movie before, and we had a really lovely one where we were in a park in Brooklyn, and we were walking around a body of water talking about the film, and it was really pretty cool, just sort of organically, like how we're kind of riffing on different ideas that you're having and stuff. So, you know, um, it's too bad that we didn't get to record in that way. Sometimes when you formalize conversations like this, like, you know, you lose a tiny bit of the spirit of like that sort of magic of riffing and, and the epiphanies that you're that we could potentially have together just through talking about the movie off the cuff with no pressure. But uh, I thought you did pretty good with this, even this more formalized kind of conversation. Well, I forgot. I forgot there were moments where I was sort of forgetting forgetting where i was <laughs> yeah it's a it's a lot it's a lot there's so much in the movie if you ever have some new revelations in the next few weeks let me know and maybe we could just do a little addendum you got it okay but uh just want to say thanks matt for coming on the show thanks slap how do we <laughs> how do people find you online if they wanted to find you they can't they can't they can't find the movies that you've made nope Really? Yeah. I mean, they could look. Uh-huh, but they won't find you. Yeah, maybe not. So, all right. All right, great. So, a man <laughs> with nothing to promote. <laughs> I love it. You're really a true free spirit. Oh, no. <laughs> You're like, I'm not that either. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. Uh, all right. Well, if you change your mind, let me know, and I will insert that here. All righty. Okay. Um, but thanks again, Max. It was awesome to talk to you, man. You gotcha. When, when, when will I see you next? I don't know. Soon? All right. At some point soon. I'll pressure you into in-person talky. Absolutely, brother. And um, I'll let you know when this is coming out. Groovus. All right. But now you've been immortalized. Love your body, Larry. Love your body, Larry. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See y'all later. <laughs> Thank you.
That's going to do it for episode 13 of the post-relevant podcast. Coincidentally, Matt Kalman's favorite number. Drunkenly dog paddling in the deep end of the Silver Lake. Thanks again to Matt for coming onto the show and sharing his theories about Under the Silver Lake. And remember, there is no way to see Matt Kalman's movies on the internet. Special thanks to Alan Tobin, who co-wrote the theme song to this podcast. You're listening to it right now. You can hear that song and more if you check out our album Bodoved under Agents of Venus on Bandcamp. Very special thanks to all the songwriters who contributed their 8-bit compositions on this episode. There are too many to name right now, but you can go to the show notes for episode 13 of the Post Relevant Podcast to find out who wrote the songs and from what royalty-free music websites I found them. You can see all of my work, art, acting, music, and more at my website, thesearedreams.com. And if you'd like to contact me, you can reach me at Phil Restino on Facebook and Instagram. And you can also find lots of cool poster art and videos that I create for the show every week on my Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Phil Restino. Thanks again for listening to the Post Relevant Podcast. I truly appreciate everyone who is willing to go on these weird excursions with me. I'll be back soon, hopefully with Brother Andy, and we'll be interpreting the final few scenes of Under the Silver Lake. And remember... Alright, you're doing a terrible job of this, but... It knows itself as wonders. What? Tell me when, it, when am I supposed to... You're doing a terrible to... job explaining the dimensions. You're right. Because you went into like seven and you're stuck in like the middle. I thought you'd be a lot quicker. <laughs> okay. You still you still submit that there are seven dimensions? Oh, there's more than seven. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't work with that number. I got a mathematical mind. Seven is too many. You okay? Everything going okay in there? I, I definitely have been on the next level of being drunk. <laughs> Maybe we should okay. hit, hit, hit off and you, you can edit and delete. Alright, let's finish it then. Let's finish it off. No, we can't. There's nothing we can finish. Are you sure? That would be good. You just said you reached the next level of drum. There's nothing you can record that will be good enough. I think the whole ha- second half of our so, conversation was too drunk. Although I did make some good points. You probably did. <laughs> Alright, so. And I have a way of talking that makes me nuts. Let's end it. I don't, though. I don't, though. I don't, though. I don't. Yes. You have spent way more time blending in than I have. I wish I could, but I cannot. Well, again, this was fun. It was amazing. Thank you, Max. God God bless you all. I'm gonna rip. I'm gonna stop it and it'll be fun to listen to this like 10 minutes ago no it's still going it'll be really fun to listen to this as phil in the future and he'll be like (laughs) what the fuck what's wrong with you you motherfucker you drank too much wine this phil right here too much wine he's a good guy too much wine i love this guy he's the best Uh, guy thanks we had one of the best guys we finally had a conversation with max flackman that really Got to the bottom of it. Uh, the bottom of what? <laughs> the bottom of this bottle of Pinot Grigio. Uh, 
<laughs> and I love you all. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Who are you talking to? <laughs> Listeners. <laughs>